Hello, everybody. Welcome back to For the World, our sustainability series at For the Girls. Today, we are so excited to get into everything Extreme E with none other than founder and CEO Alejandro Agog and Emma Gilmore, McLaren's first ever female driver. If you haven't tuned in to Extreme E before, we highly, highly recommend it. They are pushing the boundaries across sustainability, across diversity. They race in the most amazing places. So we're just going to give you a quick intro on Extreme E and then dive into our conversations. So with that, Extreme E, it's an off-road racing series in the most remote corners of the planet impacted by climate change. That's how they describe themselves. It's the first sport to be built out of concern for climate change from the ground up, which we absolutely love. And the mission is really to showcase how electric vehicles can perform under extreme conditions in hopes that through sport and education and excitement, it will accelerate their adoption around the world. So there are 10 teams, and what's unique and awesome is that each team has one male and one female driver. So we're hitting both the sustainability and the diversity angles here. We love that. There are 10 races a year in five different locations. So each location has two races in a weekend. And what's really cool is that Extreme E transports all its race cars, infrastructure, equipment, using sea freight, which is much more sustainable, on a ship called the St. Helena. Um, it's 7,000 tons, and it's way less carbon intensive than air freight, so it cuts about 5,200 tons of CO2 equivalents, or about 75% less than by air transportation. It also houses people during races. It has a science lab. Definitely check out more about that ship. It is so cool. But in terms of cars... All Extreme E-teams use the same car. It's a fully electric SUV named the Odyssey 21, 100% electric. It goes 0 to 100 kilometers per hour in 4.5 seconds, so that's really crazy. The shell is made with sustainable uh, natural flax fiber. The batteries are designed to withstand crazy extreme temperatures and terrain, so lots of good stuff going on and really cool technology being employed to race all over the world. In terms of the race format, there are two sets of qualifying heats. There's Q1 and Q2, each with two heats of five cars. Then there are finals, sort of like semis, which determines the top five teams who go to the grand final. And then the bottom the bottom five teams still compete in what's called the redemption race. So really cool race format, lots of racing, and the races are pretty short. Um, they're like less than they can be less than ten minutes. So it's like really fast, lots of action, super cool to watch. One of my personal favorite things about Extreme E is their legacy program. So they do these legacy projects that are meant to provide social and environmental support at each race location. You'll hear both Alejandro and Emma talk about those experiences in our convos, but I just think it's so important that they, you know, we focus on global with sustainability, but it's also really important to focus on local communities and building impact there. So I'll talk about kind of the legacy projects that they've done in some of the locations they've raced in. Super cool. So with that, we're going to get started with Alejandro, the founder and CEO of Extreme E. He started as a politician. He became the personal assistant to the Spanish prime minister at 25, and he served in the European parliament after that. He'll tell you why he left politics in our interview, but it's a funny story. 
And then after that, that's when his motorsport career started. He acquired the F1 TV rights in Spain, which you'll hear him discuss. And he has gone on to found Formula E, Extreme E, now E1, Powerboat Racing, and also Extreme H, which is hydrogen powered. So he'll talk a little bit, especially about the hydrogen series and what his hopes are for that. And then finally, we'll get talking to Emma Gilmore about her experience as an Extreme E driver and McLaren's first ever female driver. Super exciting conversations with both. They're both incredible. Let's just dive into it. All right, Alejandro, thank you so much for joining us today for the girls. We're so excited to dive into your experience, your vision for motorsport and beyond. You have had a massive career in politics, business, motorsport, founding Formula E, Extreme E, now E1 and Extreme H on the horizon, which is super exciting. But to rewind a bit, talk to us a little bit about your background and potentially leading the witness here, but maybe how the unusual combination of your marriage and Fernando Alonso's world championship helped launch your <laughs> career in motorsport. Yes. Yes, yes. So uh, my background was really in politics. So I did politics since I was 18. When I was in university, um, I graduated in economics, but I, I really politics was my main uh, passion. And I did politics until I was 31. 30, yeah, 31, I think. The last thing I was doing was I was secretary general of the EPP, which is the center-right coalition in the European Parliament. I was also a member of, of Parliament, of European Parliament. And um, then I started dating my wife, which was also the daughter of my boss at the time, was the prime minister of Spain. So I decided <laughs> to stop politics and uh, and then um, we decided to get married. So I didn't really have any job. And then um, Flavio Briatore, who was in Formula One, I was a good friend of mine, had this young kid um, and he said, this kid is Spanish if, uh, and no one uh, is able to, 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 you know, Bernie can't, cannot sell the rights of TV in Spain. Nobody wants them. So let's try to get the rights. And then if this kid is good, you know, we may, we may do a good <laughs> business. And that was the beginning of my motorsport career. Uh, the kid was Fernando Alonso. He went on immediately to, uh, win races and then won the world championship. And, uh, yeah, and, and, and we did really well with that. And from there, everything else is history. <laughs> Love it. We're we're big Alonso fans on the podcast, um, especially this year. So yes. jumping a little bit into Formula E and Extreme E, I'm sure you dealt with a certain amount of skepticism when you launched it. So what were some of the biggest challenges you faced getting it off the ground? So with Formula E, really, the, the challenge was that nobody really believed it was going to survive. Everybody thought it was going to just, just die. Uh, and then, of course, people don't want to join a project that is going to die because you know they they it, it, it's not good for their image if not it's not good for their finances i mean you know you lose money if the project dies so um, yeah it was really hard to get people on board we had some good surprises so we had some early coming sponsors and we had some teams that came early but it was very hard to to you know get rid of that um impression that people got that we were not going to last then um, when when Liberty Global and Discovery came on board as shareholders, that all changed. And people thought, oh, if they have these two big corporations backing them, maybe this thing is going to last. And then a lot of people started coming, a lot of manufacturers started joining, more sponsors. So everything changed. But in the beginning, really, was the belief that we were not going to survive. Mm-hmm. And how did you overcome that? <laughs> Well, <laughs> it was not very easy. We had to sell a lot. We had to tell a lot of the story. <laughs> we had to convince a lot of people. We have to 
just basically uh, keep trying. And, you know, we got every every 20 no's, we got one yes. So <laughs> we were just collecting those yeses and then, you know, ignoring the no's and, 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 and keep going. But it was, yeah, it was really hard. Um, and, you know, we were very, very close to going bankrupt a few times. It was really, uh, you know... You know, a lot of sleepless nights, but uh, but yeah, then in the end we had the we we were able to turn it around. It was not easy. I can imagine. So we want to dig in a little bit to the sustainability angle of both Formula E and Extreme E. Of course, every organization these days seems to claim that they're green or aiming towards net zero in some way, but. We're starting to see companies and organizations get called out for greenwashing, maybe misrepresenting their impact. As sort of the expert on that, what are your standards for sort of measuring true impact? And how do you feel your series are setting an example for others to follow? So I'm a bit contrarian on that uh, kind of whole movement of uh, these people, you know, that uh, accuse others of greenwashing and they think that they can like allocate uh, passports of who is uh, green or not. I think, um, you know, everybody has a role to play. Having said that, uh, you know, there is, it's, it's important for, for, to have people that raise awareness and raise the, the alarm, if you like. Uh, but then the, what's, real, what's really important is to make changes that are compatible with um, economic growth, with our way of life. Like people is not going to sacrifice their way of life for the environment. They're not. And if we try to do it on that premise, we will fail. People will change their habits as long as um, it's more practical and makes more economical sense for them to do it. So when a, when an electric car is cheaper and better than a combustion car, people will buy it. But they will mm -hmm. not buy an electric car because they want to save the planet and they're, they're going to spend twice the money on an electric car. No, they won't do that. Yeah. And, and we can lie to ourselves as much as we want, but you know, we will not solve the problem by telling ourselves things that will not happen. So for me, it, it's all it's all part of a long transition, long transition that is going to cost a lot of money. It's going to cost a lot of energy, a lot of effort. We're going to need we're going to need a lot of energy. We're going to need a lot of fossil fuel energy to get out fossil fuel era. Um, solar panels are, are are made with energy. Wind turbines are made with energy. Uh, and, and that energy is not coming from solar panels. It will come from fossil fuels. And then that will help get rid of the fossil fuels. Mm. Um, so we have to take this, as a, uh, we have to take this a, a, on a realistic approach. So let's do and say and apply things that work. You know, that's, that's kind of my, my, uh, my philosophy in this, which I think is maybe a bit different from like the normal people that are involved in environmental you know, action or climate action, if you like. I think I am involved in environmental action, but from a pretty realistic point of view. Yeah. And a big part, just to follow up on that, a big part of things that work, I do feel like start at the local and the community level. And I know Extreme E is very involved in that with its legacy projects. So very curious, you know, depending whether you're planting trees in Senegal, educating children in Greenland or helping with forest security in the Amazon, has there been a particular legacy project that you're most proud of? I, I think what we, what we try to uh, do with these legacy projects is really to send a message that um, everyone can play a role. And, you know, uh, adding roles and, and, and having a discussion helps a lot in general. I mean, you know, the, the effect may be very small, but, but it's very important for the people who do it. 
because that will help change the mindset of the people that are really participating in every in every project. You know? And uh, yeah, the projects, I mean, they're great everywhere. Um, I particularly like the one in Senegal. The, it was really nice. And it was also in the beginning of the Extreme E and it was one of the first ones that we did with those those villages that we, uh, you know, we, we had an intervention in and the beaches that we cleaned and uh, all the things that we did there. Um, but we found fascinating ones, like, for example, the ones in uh, Sardinia, because in the beginning we thought maybe we only find interesting projects in like very remote locations. You know, you think of the Amazon or you think of the mm -hmm. ice cap in Greenland or whatever. But in, in Sardinia, which is, you know, very close, uh, just one hour and a half flight from London, um, the project of the Posidonia Oceanica, so these, these kind of forests, on the water forest of, uh, of this algae that absorbs so much CO2 is really a huge CO2, it's a carbon sink. How to uh, reforest those forests, if you like. It's almost a work of art with these little needles mm -hmm. and people like sewing the plants to the bottom, these divers and so on, and seeing that you can really have that effect uh, so close to home. I think it's also was also really fascinating. Or, you know, the studying the, the wildfires also that happen in Sardinia yeah. and how mm -hmm. climate change has affected yeah. the temperature uh, of the of the soil just just a few centimeters below the the ground you 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 have you have temperatures of the of the sand that are that are like twice that what they were only a few years ago so yeah all, all these all these projects are really interesting and even if they can be small or big but the important thing is to participate in them because in change it changes your own mindset yeah so it's shifting gears a little bit to talk about of course extreme is a leader in sustainability but also in in diversity when it comes to pioneering women in motorsport, what was the thought process behind making gender equality such a key part of your mission? And where are there any lessons that you took away from that? So, you know, uh, now gender equality is, is something that is like very, very much on top, on top of the agenda uh, for everyone. Yeah. But but for, for me, for me, it's really been something that has been like almost like a, like a mission or a, or a, I don't know if a passion, a mission or, a, or, or a, for like over 20 years. Uh, in racing so i about 20 years ago i started a formula 3 team in spain uh, where i where i had uh, wanted to do an only female team and i did a test i i we did a test in the track in valencia I remember in cheste and i still have some pictures of that test i look really young <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we we brought all the female drivers that we could find that were you know racing competitively around uh, europe and america and we test uh, we tested all of them on on the GP2 cars that we we, we brought there, and um, yeah, and then we chose two, and they and and we actually uh, me personally I financed the full season for two, um, for two girls to to do the whole season in Formula Three, but it didn't work. It didn't work for many reasons. First, it didn't work because because they didn't succeed uh, on the sports side, and that was frustrating for them, and um, and also. It didn't work on the sponsorship side, so I thought there would be companies interested in sponsoring female drivers, but there wasn't. There was we tried, we did pitches to so many companies, and there was zero support for that. Interesting. Um, I know, right? So I basically took it as a lesson and 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 always kept it in the in the back of my mind, like how how can I change this? Um, you know, because you never know if a woman will be faster than a man or, or in Formula One. The fact today is that there aren't there. Um, but I wanted to find a solution that would allow women and men to really compete on a, on a, like a same kind of uh, uh, platform and same kind of level. And 
Dennis gave me the solution, which was the mixed doubles that yeah. uh, in Wimbledon. And I thought, why don't we do a mixed doubles in racing? And then it doesn't matter if they go faster or slower. They're both equally important for victory. And that was kind of the idea. We came up with that during the during COVID, uh, brainstorming on how to kind of, because I, since then I was trying, and you know, we had also female drivers in Formula E, and it was the same. Uh, they, they didn't succeed on the, succeed on the sports side. In Formula in Extreme E, there is always women in the podium, in the top of the podium, because they're mm -hmm. part of a team, male and female. And I think it's also important that, uh, for me at least, that I like to show men and women working together. You know, sometimes we live now in a, in a world in which there is uh, this kind of trend to kind of oppose men and women. I think it's the opposite. I think men and women is the best thing possible. Teamwork makes the dream work. I love that. And it seems like such a simple yet brilliant solution. Um, we're excited about it. Just to follow yeah, up really but, quick, are there any things that you're really excited about for the future of women in Extreme E and in motorsport in general? Well, I, I think, you know, what's been really interesting is that the, the, the time difference over these three years between men and women has, has really shrunk. Yes. So they're, they're, they're catching up so quick. So it means that if you give female drivers enough, uh, uh, you know, track time and the same machine as the guy, and here there's so much the same machine that they basically jump into the same machine. So they basically, one goes out and the other one goes in. Um, women can catch up. So it would be really fascinating to see one woman really, uh, you know, succeed in Formula One or I just think we need to see more women in motor racing in whichever uh, capacity. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was sad to see that the W Series didn't didn't continue. Now they yeah. have the F1 Academy, which is you know I think is a great project. Anyway, the the more we see uh, female racers, the I think the the best for the sport and uh, the best for everything. We totally agree. We talk about that all the time and appreciate all the work <laughs> you're doing. Um, so kind of on the topic of F1, there are a ton of F1 names involved in Extreme E from Lewis Hamilton, Nico Rosberg, Jensen Button, McLaren. The list goes on. How does F1 benefit or can they benefit from the strides your series are making, the technology you're deploying? In your opinion, is F1 moving fast enough on the sustainability front? So I think F1, it's, it's you know, uh, has a lot of heritage, of course, great heritage, amazing heritage. But the heritage also conditions you if you want to change direction quickly. You know? um, I think extreme age can be very interesting for Formula One. Because hydrogen, who knows, could be a technology in the future for Formula One. At least it's one of the potential technologies for Formula One. Because I don't think Formula One is going to go to battery racing. I think that's yeah. for Formula E. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of talk of uh, e-fuels, synthetic fuels, carbon neutral fuels. But potentially hydrogen could be even a better solution. So to have a testing ground, to have a championship that it's, you know, goes ahead with hydrogen, like Extreme H will do, Maybe something that that could be very interesting from the technology uh, point of view for Formula One. In any case, I'm a big fan of Formula One. I think Formula One is doing a great job. Um, I love going to Formula One races. You know, I've been around Formula One races for 20 years or two more, <laughs> 20 years plus. So I really, for me, Formula One is is part of my life. Yeah, I want to dig in a little bit to the hydrogen question and hear a little bit more about that vision because. We know it's it's potentially huge for the envi environment, but one of the big challenges is you know producing that in a green way from renewable sources, which is difficult. How are you kind of approaching that problem with Extreme Age? So hydrogen, hydrogen is not really a source of energy. You can say hydrogen is a fuel because it's a fuel, but hydrogen is really a way to store energy. 
And uh, of course, hydrogen has been around for forever. Uh, hydrogen in, in the industrial processes, hydrogen is a byproduct, but of course, it comes uh, out of very, very polluting processes. Um, so now what, what, what they've done <laughs> is to put colors in the hydrogen. Colors which only uh, mean where the hydrogen is, uh, how the hydrogen is produced, mm -hmm. because the hydrogen, once it's produced, is hydrogen. So all the hydrogen is the same. You don't have hydrogen A, B, and C. It's just hydrogen. So green hydrogen, the one produced with re renewable energy, it's it's especially interesting. And why? Because you can produce this hydrogen in places that, that have the potential of a lot of uh, um, renewable energy, uh, like, like deserts, like uh, places with a lot of wind. But normally, people don't live there. And uh, if you produce solar energy in the desert, uh, but there is no people, then you just there's no use okay, for that yes. energy. You need to you need to either have a cable, but you don't have a cable strong enough to go from you know the desert in Saudi Arabia to Europe, or you uh, have to find a way to store it in something that you can transport, and that is green hydrogen. Green hydrogen, you got you you can transport in different ways. You can you can uh, do it as ethanol, or you can do it as green ethanol or green uh, uh, methane. I mean, there are different ways. Uh, then you have to retransform it in hydrogen, and then you can use it uh, as a way to fuel, uh, well, the energy we need in, 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 for example, in Europe. So that's why it's so interesting. And then in motor racing, <clears throat> there are two ways to use this hydrogen. One is to uh, use it uh, uh, with the fuel cells. So this is the, the way you can produce electricity. So basically, you, you use hydrogen to power an electric car, in a way, or you can burn it you can have hydrogen combustion. And that mm -hmm. one has one thing that some people like a lot, which is noise. It makes yeah. noise. So <laughs> People don't want to give um, that up. <laughs> no. So why not, you know? But the combustion of hydrogen is still on a very early stage of development. Hydrogen is very... Um, first of all, the, the, the atoms of hydrogen are very small. So they, 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 there is leaks. They can, they can escape the containment. And second... Um, they're very aggressive on the materials, for example, inside the cylinder. So you need to find materials that can resist the combustion of that hydrogen and, and on, 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 a, on a longer period. But, you know, all of this is technology R&D, and, you know, that's what sports do well. Sports is the platform where you can develop technology. So so I think the potential for a, for a hydrogen championship is, is huge, and, and that's, that's the role that I think Extreme Age will play. Super exciting. Yeah, we've been having those conversations with people too, people who have been to extreme races and love it, but it does kind of in their minds feel like two different things. So it's cool that we're kind of developing towards both. Switching yeah. gears a little bit, because this is something that we talk about on our podcast a lot, is the the drive to survive evocation of F1 or the growing fan base. Of course, you know, there's a lot of different opinions, a lot of different things to say about that, but of course, we see a massive growing fan base of increasingly younger and increasingly female fans, which we love to see. So tell us a little bit about your series. What's the fan base like? What do you hope that women and girls watching the sport are taking out of it? Well, what I can tell you is I'm very jealous of the what that survive uh, effect in Formula One. I <laughs> wish I would have had the same for Formula E for Extreme. No, uh, so I wish I would have had. I, I think they've done a great job. Uh, I like it. I haven't seen all the episodes uh, because, you know, if you're, too much in the inside sometimes you know it gets kind of you know already what's what happens but right. but i think it's done great for the sport and uh and for the female fans i i think they're really lucky um 
we're trying to you know achieve the same uh, without Netflix, uh, but uh, you know it's not easy to build a fan base. We are slowly; it takes a long time to build a fan base, yeah. and uh, we, you know that's what we're doing. Formula Eight nine years now. All the races are are packed full of people, but uh, but it takes time, takes time, and uh, yeah, we have just to be patient and keep going and the younger the audience the better i think that has been a great thing for formula one to, to be able to catch a kind of a new generation of fans yeah yeah and it's so fun to see women drivers we spoke to emma gilmore from from mclaren and mm. i mean for us it's so fun to see a really high performing female doing so well i think that's a huge thing that women and girls can take out of it too just to see people like them up there i think so i think and i think like seeing the woman fighting for victory gives a different motivation you know if you're okay. following woman driver and she's always the last one then you know it's not nice uh yeah. you, you want to see women winning yeah yeah it was great we got lots of fun pictures of emma on the podium from scotland super exciting so to wrap up we ask everyone we interview this question and it's somewhat related to what we were just talking about but You've taken a lot of risks. You've paved an unprecedented path in motorsport. You've created huge impact. What advice do you have for those who are trying to break in and do similar in the space? Well, the usual advice would be like, you know, keep doing, you can do it, believe in yourself and all that. But, you know, that's <laughs> that's kind of like, um, you know, I don't know, from a movie or something. Um, <laughs> it's tough. You know what I mean? It's very tough. And many people don't make it. So just don't ruin your life uh, thinking that you're gonna be like you know the best in motorsport. Just give it a give it a proper try, but never forget like to have a plan B, to go to university or to have a job or to have some kind of thing as a backup. You will that can even help you perform better because you will have less pressure when you're trying to you know win a race in a junior category or something like that. Like you know I've been dealing a lot with you know with young fathers of the drivers, which is like, you know, <laughs> a lot worse than deal with the drivers. Um, and, you know, sometimes the, frust the frustration is really bad. So I think, uh, you know, give it a try to in motorsport. I think it's a beautiful world and uh, not only driving, but also engineers, mechanics, whatever. And have a plan B if, that, if it doesn't work. That's great advice. We love, love that. It. Well, Alejandro, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. We know how busy you are, and we are so excited to keep up with what's happening in Sardinia this week and next weekend. Thanks. Are you going to come to Sardinia? Well, you're we invited wish. if you want to come. <laughs> it's a beautiful place. Okay, okay cool. <laughs> thank you, Alejandro. Bye-bye. Okay, that was lovely. He had a lot to say. And before we get to talking with Emma Gilmore, we wanted to hit a few sustainability headlines just super quickly. So number one, all 10 teams are now FIA three-star environmentally accredited, which is super exciting. And in addition to all the teams, Pirelli now also holds the three-star environmental accreditation, as well as a lot of race promoters and circuits, including Italy, Spain, Belgium, Austria, and the UAE with the UK, Japan, and Singapore possessing the accreditation at least at some level. U.S., where are you at? <laughs> We're waiting impatiently for, for the U.S. events to possess some level of accreditation, so hopefully that's coming soon. What's interesting about this is that the audits are carried out by an independent auditor to help ensure that the reviews are impartial, which is great. You heard Alejandro talk a little bit about his thoughts on greenwashing, but it's definitely important to make sure that 
you know, this is unbiased and all of those good things. So next, Austria uh, piloted a low carbon energy efficiency solution at the Grand Prix this past weekend. So a low carbon system was used to power all garages and motorhomes, as well as the pit wall, the timing room, the event technical center, and the energy system produced enough energy to meet the energy demands and was powered by more sustainable sources like hydro-treated vegetable oil, biofuel, and solar panels on the inner field of the final corner at the Red Bull Ring, which is a cool, cool view. And it was estimated that 90% of carbon was reduced um, from the operation of paddock, pit lane, and F1 broadcast areas in comparison to last year's Austrian Grand Prix. So that's huge. 90% is incredible. And I hope this experiment starts to roll out at many other events upcoming. So just to hit on a couple quick past and upcoming events, we had the Portland E-Prix for Formula E a few weeks ago. The Rome and the London E-Prix are coming up later this July, so definitely stay tuned for those. And then what's super exciting and on brand for, on topic, I guess, for this episode is the Sardinia X-Prix is this weekend for Extreme E. So Make sure to tune in and follow your favorite drivers and teams. We have tons of F1 names involved in Extreme E, from Lewis Hamilton to Nico Rosberg to McLaren, Jensen Button, Carlos Sainz Sr. There are tons of familiar faces that are involved, so definitely recommend checking it out. And with that, we are going to dive straight into Emma. So excited to talk. You know what we love about our Tacova's cowboy boots? You can wear them all year round and for literally any occasion. Of course, you can wear them at the rodeo or at the ranch, but since we're in New York City, we've been getting creative. I even wore mine with a polka dot dress and tights to Sarah's birthday party at a fun, trendy bar in New York City. Tacova's is Western to their core, and they believe in Western for all, handmaking their boots from the most premium leathers. And if you can't make it to a store, visit tacovas.com. that's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com, and point your toes west. And as a special bonus for you, Tacova's is throwing in a free trucker hat or ball cap worth $30 for all online orders over $100. Just use code F1 at checkout. Again, for a limited time, just enter code F1 at checkout to add a free logo hat to your order as a one-time gift from Tacova's. only at Tacovas.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to For the Girls. We are so honored to have Emma Gilmore on with us. Emma is an extreme e-driver from New Zealand, the first female driver and podium winner for McLaren, the first woman to win a round of the New Zealand Rally Championship. She grew up horse riding. She's a rally driver. She owns a car dealership back home when she's not racing. (laughs) So already just incredibly cool, well-rounded, tons to talk about. The Extreme E season is well underway with Emma and McLaren getting their first podium of the season at the Hydro X Prix in Scotland last month alongside her teammate Tanner Faust. So Emma, we are so, so happy to have you with us. We can't wait to dive into your background, but first, our listeners are huge F1 fans, but we have a lot of people interested in all motorsport series. So tell us, what makes you love Extreme E so much as a series? Why should people tune in? What made you want to become a driver? We'll start there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. It's, it's great to be here. Uh, yeah, Extreme E is super exciting. Uh, it started, this is its third season, so uh, it's a new kind of motorsport. But what's super exciting about it is they've just started from scratch, really. They haven't tried to electrify an existing kind of motorsport. Yeah. Uh, these vehicles, if you don't have any concept of 
where they are or the scale of them. They look like remote control buggies. They're <laughs> these huge, um, huge vehicles and they're on terrain that has never seen a racetrack before. So we're racing across, uh, across country um, in all sorts of parts of the planet. And then to make it super interesting is it's kind of like a relay race. So every team has a male and female driver and we each take turns driving in the car. So one will start and then we come into a switch zone, sort of like a pit area, like an F1. Um, and then that driver gets out, the next driver gets in and then they do their laps and finish the race. Uh, and contacts allowed. It's a bit like rallycross um, in terms of anything can happen. And Usually we're as surprised as the audience at home. Um, it's very surprising because of the terrain and the cars, they move around and um, it's bumpy and, and uphills, downhills. It's, yeah, it's crazy. The last race where we podiumed, uh, it was super muddy, so we could barely see out of the windscreen. Um, yeah, it's just, it's it's crazy racing, really. Everyone loves watching it when they watch it. And it's short, sharp racing as well. Like generally a race is over within 15 minutes. So wow. yeah, it's pretty exciting. That's so fun. And I actually, I grew up in Scotland, so I'm just envisioning like you guys driving through the Scottish countryside with all the <laughs> I definitely feel that. Um, well, so Tiggy mentioned at the beginning, you had, you were a horseback rider, then you made the switch to rally driving. And then of course you were McLaren's first female driver. So what led you to do all those different switches? It's so cool. Yeah, I mean, the, the being McLaren's first female driver, that's something that I never, ever would have imagined happening. Uh, growing up in New Zealand, a huge fan of McLaren and um, and the legacy that Bruce created um, started with 60 years ago. So uh, to be here, that that's something that I never pictured because McLaren's an F1 brand. So I never imagined being an F1 driver uh, growing up. But uh, yeah, going back to the horse riding, uh, grew up <laughs> horse riding. Loved eventing, wanted to go to the Olympics, and um, but sadly none of my horses had read the game plan about how we were going to go to the Olympics. <laughs> they, had, they had differences of opinion. So um, so that sort of came to a, an end where I realised that maybe my heart wasn't in it anymore. And uh, I discovered rally co-driving. So in rallying, um, it's like a motorsport where we rally on closed stages or roads and in the car, you have a driver and you have a co-driver or a navigator. So I started as a navigator and then finally had to go in the driver's seat. And it was the best feeling in the world. Um, I was just hooked from, from day one, the feeling of going fast um, on a gravel road and having a road completely to yourself with no oncoming traffic, no police officers. Um, yeah, best <laughs> feeling in the world. So, uh yeah, I just, I, I love driving and that was kind of what kept me um, motivated and um, passionate about the sport for many, many years. And then when Extreme E came onto the um, onto the horizon, I guess, it really opened up an opportunity for me as a female driver to, to get an opportunity on the world stage. And, uh, and I was fortunate enough that Zach had uh, noticed me, um, Zach from McLaren, and, and yeah. he gave me the phone call. So, yeah, it's, it, it still gives me goosebumps um, because so cool. I just never would have pictured being here at McLaren um, as a rally driver. So it's super cool that, you know, McLaren has broadened its horizons with all its different race teams that it has. And, you know, supporting a series like Extreme is really exciting. Yeah, it is so cool. And to have the McLaren name, we see Bruce over your shoulder there, <laughs> Zach Brown giving you a call. That is so cool. And unless I'm mistaken, weren't you announced at COP26 as the first female driver in the presence of Prince Charles as well? What was that moment like? <laughs> Again, it was another pinch me moment. It was just so surreal because, I mean, you grow up 
watching Prince Charles on TV and yeah. he's just like there. It's like, you know, it's those moments where you think, I know this person. And then it's like, no, no, I don't. <laughs> I've just seen them <laughs> on TV my whole life. But um, I, we were told when we were, we were briefed about meeting him about we were allowed to, or you, you could curtsy if you wanted to. And I was like, of course I'm going to curtsy. Where, when else am I going to be able to curtsy for someone? So, um, yeah, I don't know if it was a good curtsy, but I curtsied. You did it in practice? <laughs> I did practice. <laughs> I don't even know how you would practice that. I would be tripping over myself. I would have no idea. <laughs> yeah, but it was super cool. Yeah, again, amazing, amazing experience. That's so cool. So speaking of practicing, I guess we can jump into what it's like, you know, practicing, being the life, day in the life of an ex- extreme e driver. We know right with F1, there's like 22, 23 races a year. You're in the sim, brand partnerships, media events recording podcasts I guess <laughs> what's, the, what's the schedule like for extreme e you have five or so race weekends in a year you're going to pretty remote places what are you up to in between how are you preparing yeah it's it's a real challenge with extreme e because we have so few events we have not nearly as much seat time as like an f1 driver gets like you say and we also don't have simulators like they do um like the, the formula cars do so we have a lot more downtime, which uh, for me, I try and fill up that time by driving as many other vehicles as possible, just so <laughs> that you've got seat time and practice, practice, practice. Um, but yeah, and then other t- other things, obviously, we're, we're doing um, opportunities like this with media and, and other things. But yeah, back home in New Zealand, I have a rally car that I still compete with. And then also just doing other training opportunities and, and just trying to drive as much as possible. So cool. Yeah, it must be a challenge. I feel like even F1 drivers complain about the the time they get in seats being so little. It's a totally different yeah. level. <laughs> yeah, well, with, with the vehicles being electric, they we don't do huge amounts of running at the at the events. And also with the events being about sustainability, it's also part of it as well, is that we're not doing lots and lots of mileage. So really totally. challenging. And for the course walk, we effectively just walk the course, which, as you can imagine, looks quite different at walking speed to coming yeah. across all these bumps and dips at um, 100 miles an hour. So, yeah, quite different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, a team, like a team hike, a team hiking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would love to dig into the sustainability aspect of Extreme a little bit. We just started at For the Girls, a sustainability series called For the World. And I would love to just hear a little bit about the legacy days and maybe sustainability more broadly. I know Extreme has partnered with a lot of organizations, everything from forest security in the Amazon to planting trees in Senegal. Tell us about that experience and how they're important to Extreme E. Yeah, I mean, you've summed it up very well there, but it's a really integral part about the whole what Extreme E stands for. So every event we go to, we have a legacy project, as they call it, and um, that involves us as drivers going along and learning about what the challenges that area is facing in terms of environmental damage and change. And uh, and I guess we learn about what, what they're doing there to, to help it. The bigger message, I guess, is learning and helping to educate about what we can all do um, better or differently to, to leave the world in a better place. Uh, and I think that's what's really cool about Extreme is that it's it's using an exciting form of motorsport to help educate um, and inspire the, the next generation. 
so going to these remote locations that have never seen live sport um, of anything, and we're basically shining a spotlight on that area um, and highlighting what's happening whilst doing motorsport in a sustainable way. We travel with a very small team. There's only like eight, uh, eight of us. And then we're in these inflatable tents and then everything's shipped mm-hmm. on a boat um, between the events, which is why it's such a small calendar spread out over a long time because it takes the time between the events to be with everything being shipped. So, yeah, and then on top of that, we have obviously the male and female element as well, which um, is is super cool. Uh, You know, no other motorsport has ever done that where they've really given women a platform to compete equally in equal machinery and, and to have that opportunity. It's so interesting what you were saying about like shipping up and moving across across the world. I think that's probably one of the biggest things that we talk about when it comes to F1 sustainability because it is just like so many different people and all, you know, so many different races. So, you know, we know that there are a lot of high profile F1 people involved in the sport, Nico Rosberg, Hamilton, of course, McLaren as, a, as an organization. So do you think F1 is taking some of the sustainability practices and the learnings of Extreme, like you just mentioned, and implementing, I think it's such a great platform that you all have to kind of educate other teams across the motorsport world. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, again, you've summed that up really nicely, but I think it's what McLaren noticed as well. And, and seeing that getting involved with um, a series like Extreme, along with all of the other uh, racing that McLaren does, what, what they can learn and take away from Extreme E can be used in other areas of their racing. So it's uh, it's it's part of a much bigger package I guess and and learnings which um yeah is is really exciting I think um you know another thing about the extreme that we don't have spectators so you know it's it's a very small footprint that um you know and it's about that racing without leaving a trace so I think what we're learning and what we're showing can be done and what we can achieve with extreme will filter across into the other categories of motorsport yeah. How, what is that like as a driver to not have spectators? Does, is that a challenge or are you guys just so excited to be there? <laughs> it's, it's, it's really interesting because, I mean, you're always, I guess, aware of um, being watched, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and knowing that it's live TV, like I can remember my very first, um, you know, extreme race that I did and just the nerves beforehand because you're like, there are cameras everywhere and anything that I, good or bad, um, that's about to happen is, is going to be uh, for the world to see. So there's sort of, it comes with a bit of a different pressure versus, for example, what I come from with rallying where, you know, I will rally for 30 odd kilometers on a stage and I won't see people for quite a lot, large section of that. Um, Extreme E is more like a, a um, being in a, in a gladiator's ring, you know, everyone sees everything. So um, it keeps it pretty exciting and definitely keeps, feels, feels the pressure. <laughs> and how's the energy? Like when there isn't spectators, how are you hyping yourself up for the race besides the obvious of a million cameras looking at you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's actually, I mean, when it comes down to the, um, the routine that I have inside the car, it's exactly the same regardless of what the spectator situation mm-hmm. or camera situation is. It's always the same. I have a, a set routine of what I do in the countdown with the three minutes, one minute, 30 seconds as you get down to the lights going green. Um, and so I just focus on that to try and get yourself into the correct mindset. Incredible. Uh, so earlier in one of the questions that we were talking about, you did mention how, you know, every team has a male driver and a female driver. 
of course, one thing that we talk about on our podcast, literally called Florida Girls, is getting women involved in in motorsport. And I think it's so incredible that we're able to have the privilege to talk to folks like yourself where you are making huge strides and you have such an incredible platform. But in terms of your perspective as a extreme E driver, female driver, rally driver, motorsports in general, like what are some of the biggest challenges that you've seen if you wanted to kind of like wave a magic wand and say, okay, we want the sport to be accessible for anyone and everyone? Uh, I think a lot of the challenges that a female young driver will face is the same as a young male driver. Like the, the, one of the biggest challenges with motorsport is the cost of motorsport. It's yeah. it's not a cheap sport to get into. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me personally, I, I, I personally have always focused on the positives that being a female in the sport has brought to me. And for me, that was standing out from the crowd when it came to media exposure um, and people remembering you and, and your story. Uh, and I know living in New Zealand and getting opportunities overseas, I got many opportunities because I was a female in a male sport. Uh, so for me, I was focusing on the positives. But I think in terms of waving a magic wand and making motorsport more accessible, um, I guess it's it's making people aware of how they get into motorsports. So it's educating and, and showing a pathway um, that people can get into. Uh, speaking with my experience in New Zealand, we have a lot of car clubs that are very much grassroots that you can join, even without a vehicle, if you want to get in on a volunteering level and that sort of thing. And I think what's really exciting with the series like Drive to Survive is that it's showing what an exciting industry motorsport is and how big an industry it is. It's it's not just drivers. Obviously, we get the spotlight, but there's so much more behind us that allows us to go fast and I think it's such an exciting industry to be in. So whether it's being a mechanic or an engineer or doing podcasts or the media or the social side of it, there's just so many parts of a motorsport team um, that it's, it's, yeah, it's a really exciting industry. Totally. And we've, I mean, we've not been doing this for too long, a little over a year, but we have a lot of listeners and young women in America and abroad who are so excited about getting into the sport, wanting to be involved in any way. And this is something we ask every person we talk to on the podcast, (laughs) but in terms of advice you would have for those young women or just people in general trying to get in, break into the sport, there are a lot of things that motorsport can be doing, but what can some of these young women be thinking about? (laughs) Uh, I think the biggest, um, the biggest muscle you probably use in motorsport is resilience. Um, yeah. And I think, I mean, that's probably true in life in general, to be fair. I mean, we, I focus on motorsport because that's that's my experience. But, you know, it's being able to always just keep focusing forward because there's always going to be disappointments and knockbacks. But it's it's staying true to what's in your heart and your passion and, and what you want to achieve and what you want to do and just learn from learn from everything, but always be focusing forward and just, yeah, keep working towards that goal. Quick follow-up question on that advice because I, <laughs> I love that advice and I can – I think for you, that was probably like very practically used when you made that huge jump, like to go from horseback riding and just to make a leap like that, I think is so cool. And I think can be an example of empowerment for a lot of people. But like, how did you have that ability to like the trusting yourself to just face forward and do that? Yeah, it's uh, it's a great question. I think it's having that faith in yourself that, you know, whatever whatever's to come, you'll still be able to manage and, and to deal with it. And I think as long as you're following your heart and you really know in your heart that it's what you want to do, I, I, I do believe things will work out. Because when I gave up the horse riding, I had no idea that this was what lay 
ahead for yeah. me, um, you know, and, and it was awful because I was giving up on a childhood dream and I just was like, wow, how can I be doing this? But I think, I think it's just having that courage to really, to, to be true to yourself because it's got to be what you want to do and it's got to be what's in your heart. Um, and I think then life has a way of rewarding you for, for having that courage to, to be true. Yeah, that's so beautifully put. Tell us about life back home a bit. Do you still horse ride at all? Tell us about your car dealership. So cool. What do you get up to at home? Uh, I would love to still have horses. It's really weird. I still dream about horses Aww. and they cross over with my cars. So I'll be running late for a rally and then there's my horse baiting. So it's weird. So there's still a very much, um, yeah, I still love the horses, but um, sadly I don't have any. But yeah, I do have the car dealership at home. Uh, and that was something I feel very fortunate through from from motorsport was having um, relationships and connections where I got the Suzuki franchise back home and yeah and again that was a bit of a leap of faith and courage and believing you can do something when you don't really know if you can but um, <laughs> giving it a go anyway so um, yeah so very proud of the dealership that I have back home and got a wonderful group of team group of people back home running it for me whilst I'm over here chasing uh, my other dream. <laughs> my uh, partner has a, I think, year 2000 Suzuki Vitara in New York City, which <laughs> is an interesting and unique site. Yeah, here. I did. <laughs> it's so funny. Um, well, we know that the next race is coming up in Sardinia in July. We're very excited for that and to watch and Maybe just to wrap up, have you had a favorite race location or experience over your time as an Extreme E driver? Uh, one of the really special places we visited was in the first season, and it was when I was racing with another team um, as a reserve driver, and we went to Greenland, and uh, yeah. we got to stand on the world's second largest ice shelf, and it was just, yeah, it was really special, and that was part of a legacy project, and just learning about, you know, the pollution and why it's melting faster and that, and then, you know, we raced in front of this huge ice shelf. It was uh surreal you know it was one of those amazing moments where you're just like wow I am here in front of an ice shelf racing motorsport yeah crazy <laughs> so cool well Emma thank you so much for joining us this has been such a pleasure to talk with you we're going to be cheering you on all season <laughs> and all things um, and we'll we'll definitely chat soon appreciate it thank you I enjoyed my chat